This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Since the racial justice uprisings of 2020, the idea of abolishing prisons and policing has entered mainstream discourse. But it's not a new idea. For decades, grassroots organizations like Critical Resistance envisioned a world without the carceral state. I'm so pleased today to welcome to the program Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore, Professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences and American Studies and the Director of the Center for the Place, Culture and Politics at CUNY Graduate Center. She also serves on the Executive Committee of the Institute for Research on the African Diaspora in the Americas and the Caribbean and is the co-founder of many grassroots organizations, including the California Prison Moratorium Project, Critical Resistance and the Central California Environmental Justice Network. Her books include Golden Gulag, Prison Surplus Crisis and Opposition in Globalizing California. And her latest book that she joins me to discuss is called Abolition Geography, Essays Towards Liberation. Welcome to the program, Ruthie. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be connected again. Yes, it's been many, many years. I think we last many. spoke about a decade ago. Um, and I remember every time we would hear this word abolition in relation to the prison state over the past couple of years, your name would pop up in my head. And I would think folks like Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore, Angela Davis, Dylan Rodriguez, they've been saying these things for a very long time. This idea that we can actually imagine a world where there are no prisons. Um, and, and it's only in the last few years that it's been taken seriously by the likes of the New York Times. So, so let's start at the beginning. When, when, when we talk about the geography of abolition, what does that mean exactly? Well, you know, the title of my book isn't the ge geography of abolition. It's abolition geography. Mm -hmm. And I put the words together in that order to make a peculiar kind of point. Um, and the peculiar kind of point I'm trying to make is that we create the conditions for our everyday lives by organizing ourselves and materials and environmental um, resources. And in putting those things together, um, sometimes institutionally as states or corporations or communities or uh, unions and sometimes in more uh, free-flowing ways, let's say how mutual aid societies work, what we're doing is we're creating a place. Whether that place is small or big makes no difference. And those places can become abolition geographies. So that's why abolition goes in front of geography rather than after a participle. So thinking about space, is that a way to visualize in real terms what abolition could look like? Because otherwise it might seem abstract. That is exactly right. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, for many people, um, when they first encounter this idea that seems so far-fetched that we might abolish uh, institutions of organized violence, such as police and prisons, they imagine some kind of void, something that isn't, 
rather than all of the things that must be for that imagination to come into um, reality. And for us to make reality, we have to, and I'm going to repeat myself already, we have to make places. There is no social life that is not spatial life. There is no kind of dream of a better future that isn't also a dream of organizing ourselves with one another and the environments in particular places, wherever they might be. So while um, most of my political experience for over the last 30 years has been based in California, it's not exclusively there. And the kind of thinking that I and others have been um, trying to develop in close collaboration with and as organizers is work that is, it's emerging all over the planet all over the planet in, in different kinds of places um, propelled by different kinds of urgencies. You start out in your book, uh, one of the first places that, that you discuss is the academy. You're an academic. Um, the realm of academic thought, especially around race and policing, has become very fraught these days politically. The Republican Party and conservatives have realized that universities are increasingly functioning the way they're supposed to be functioning because of uh, people asking, like yourself, asking critical questions and encouraging critical thought. And so there's a war on woke uh, academic thought, if you will. How, but yet, of course, the university remains a place that has engaged in supremacist thinking because it has supremacist, white supremacist in particular origins, right? So let's talk about what abolition geography can look like in the university. Okay, great question. Um, first thing I must say is the oldest piece in the book, it's called Decorative Beasts. Yes. It's in that first section. I wrote when I was a dropout. I was not even remotely an academic, not even minimally marginally, not even an adjunct yet. Um, and you know, I was a car mechanic, if, if you must know. But what I was thinking about in those days and had the opportunity to discuss and eventually publish on was the kind of places that universities could become, not so much because the various authorities and powers uh, in charge of universities then or now would be uh, individually and collectively amenable to certain sorts of changes, but rather because um, universities are and have been crossroads and people encounter one another in universities the way they encounter one another in other places where um, people who are not neighbors or otherwise uh, likely to encounter one another in everyday life can meet and learn and study and form ideas that otherwise might not have come into being. And by saying that, 
I'm not saying that universities are where radical thinking starts, that's an absurdity, but it is where certain kinds of energies can come together and have. So we can look across time and think about, oh, um, uh, events as in as recent history as uh, the sad story that I tell in Decorative Beasts about the assassination of John Huggins and Bunchy Carter, who were members of the Black Panther Party, Los Angeles chapter, who were also students at UCLA, one having done um, his service in the Navy and become radicalized while serving in Vietnam in the, in the Tonkin Gulf, the other having become radicalized on the streets of Los Angeles and had done time, his service time in prison. So they, together with many different kinds of people who had whose paths crossed at UCLA, were trying to develop a vision for Black studies that would be attentive to issues pertaining not only to race, and the, in particular, the experiences of people of African descent in the Americas, whose ancestors um, had been enslaved, but also to class and to colonialism and imperialism. All of those things mattered to them. Or we could go halfway around the world at the same time where the University of Dar es Salaam was a, such a central place where people from all over the decolonizing world um, encountered one another, uh, developed ideas, uh, forged strategies. Or we could go to Lisbon, Portugal, where in the 1950s, late 1950s, um, students from the overseas empire uh, came to Lisbon, who came to Lisbon to study um, anything from engineering to agronomy to English literature were segregated from living with mainland Portuguese students, but in living together, they formed ideas, developed study groups, and did a lot of the preparatory work that resulted eventually in the revolutions in Guinea-Bissau, Cabo Verde, Mozambique, Angola, and so forth. So these are all examples of universities being crossroads. And the fact of the matter is, it is not um, surprising that uh, the state of Florida is going after universities and trying to frighten people from pursuing certain kinds of thought. It's not the magic of words, it is rather the energy of people coming together that matters. So that energy, actually won't be or shouldn't be completely suppressed, even if the state of Florida is trying completely to suppress it. And I'll give one more example to make that vivid. And the example is the University of Western Cape in South Africa. Under apartheid, which you know, listeners probably know, the apartheid government came to power in 1948 in South Africa. Under apartheid, the state um, developed a university system that was rigorously segregated according to the multiple segregation categories of South Africa. And one of the um, quote unquote Bush universities was University of Western Cape. So in the context of segregation at the UWC, what happened? Not unlike 
the students from Portugal's overseas empire who met in Lisbon, people congregating at the University of Western Cape uh, spent a lot of time and energy underground, but there, um, uh, organizing and promoting ideas and forming political alliances that eventually over time helped to bring about the demise of apartheid. So these are some of the many examples. And each one of those examples, in my view, is an example of uh, a university becoming an abolition place. So it's not completely changing the whole university, but rather using the resources and the dynamics available to make new things happen. And I suppose it's not a surprise at all that the university ends up being um, a place of origin for many freedom movements around the world, you know, from even in you know places like Iran um, and uh, that we're seeing today, uh, Latin America, you see a lot of student-led movements. In your book, uh, Abolition Geography, you write, uh, drawing from this essay, Decorative Beasts, that you mentioned is your oldest essay in the book. You say, decorative beasts are fighting for power in the academy in crisis. The stakes are the control of epistemology. Who teaches? What is taught? Who learns? It seems as though those are the very stakes that are still relevant today, even though you wrote this essay a long time ago, and, and that sort of, that, that's where the power lies, right? Where the agenda, if you will, the intellectual agenda for society can get set. That's correct. And, um, you know, thinking with you along, along this, this trail, one thing that we can dwell on briefly is that making uh, curricular decisions uh, is obviously a form of, of power. Uh, it shapes ha what happens in classrooms, why, or to raise those questions that you just cited, who's, who studies, who learns what, and to what end. Um, we can do that in a number of ways. We can do it in you know, sort of noisy ways, trying to demand change from the top, or we can do it somewhat more quietly in the context of classrooms. Uh, I know that my colleagues in Florida are figuring out how to do these things, continue to do what they've been doing quietly in classrooms. And anybody who's listening in from the Florida Thought Police, um, We'll probably never figure out how the 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 multiple ways that people uh, figure out how to teach. For, and and Florida, because that seems to be the epicenter of attacks on things like critical race theory by by Governor um, Ron DeSantis. Exactly, exactly. Um, and and of course, although Florida is leading the way, plenty of other states and uh, school districts and so forth are are rapidly following. So you know, one of the one of the ways that people sort of struggle to to figure out how to fight in the context of so much um, fascist and proto-fascist repression, is uh, sometimes to make you know huge declamations, which are correct, um, and other times, as I said earlier, to work more quietly and persistently, and you know in collaboration with as many other people as possible. Um, 
it is, it's true as well that universities, we know this, universities and colleges in the United States are all going through a very, very long sea change. And while um, in the time that I was coming of age, um, in the middle of the 20th century, the um, opportunities for higher education were expanding really significantly, so dramatically. You know, the number of seats grew every year. So while the desegregation of post-secondary education by both race and gender um, uh, shifted dramatically in that time, it's also true that the entire um, size of universities uh, grew quite dramatically from the 50s until the early 1980s. During that time, um, school was not exactly free, but even private schools were relatively speaking affordable because of how financial aid worked, because of how debt was a very little, if, if present at all, aspect of how individuals and families paid for school and so forth. And it was starting in the, in the early 1980s that, well, very late 70s, early 80s, that the price of post-secondary education took off hand in hand with the rise in the availability, the availability of student loans, which had been a very small component of federal financial aid up until the late 1970s. So all of this, you know, weight of debt has had a conservatizing effect on people for the obvious reason. Debt always makes people more conservative. Hmm. Whether your debt is to pay your credit card or to pay your house mortgage or to pay your car note or to pay your school debt or the other kinds of debts that people have, um, debt is a frightening thing and it makes people somewhat more conservative until and unless they figure out as the, I think, hundreds of thousands of people who have been active in the uh, debt collective in recent years have learned that if they band together, then instead of becoming more individualized and conservative, what people can do is agitate nonstop for relief from this debt. And uh, it might be news to your listeners, it might not, that the debt collective, which has a very high profile in being uh, the uh, a leading voice against the debilitating consequences of student debt are also, also equally uh, committed to relieving people of medical debt. Right. So let's move to your, uh, some of the other topics that you discuss in your book, Abolition Geography. It's a collection of essays based on uh, things that you've written over the years, talks that you've given, um, race is, of course, central to this issue because our carceral state is a racist state. It is a white supremacist um, construct that that um, ensnares disproportionately people of color. What can abolition geography look like um, outside of the academy, in society, in ways that can thwart white supremacy? Um, you know, I know you've also been central in the environmental justice movement. And we know that the geography of of our communities um, tends to place pollution and the sources of pollution close to where people of color, low-income folks live. 
So how can we envision an abolition geography that is anti-racist? A way to think about that book is to think about it as a book about class war, because that's what it is. Hmm. Um, and if you read through the essays and for listeners, it's a long book. It's 480 pages, I think. A lot of essays. If you read through them, you see war pops up pretty frequently. And frequently war will pop up and it's in relation to a war like the war on Vietnam or Second World War or other wars. And other times war pops up as a, a way of describing the conditions under which people are living and struggling and trying to uh, maintain themselves and their, their lives and communities. And that latter war, which is not unrelated to the hot war, wars that um, I just mentioned, those types of wars, is at the bottom, class war. And class war is, as we learn um, by reading people like Stuart Hall, one of my great mentors and influences uh, very carefully, class war is, uh, as all class, is lived through the modalities of race, of nation, nation national um, origin, of sexuality, of gender, all of those different uh, categories of existence that we all invoke all the time, all together shape class, right? I don't like the word intersection very much, um, but it is, I think, what people who you know are using, who find Kim Crenshaw's idea useful are trying to say, that there are these multiple interactions that shape experience. Um, they don't uh, necessarily, though, create a specificity of experience that makes it wholly separate from the experiences of people whose categorical aspects come together in different ways. So the large context for abolition geography is necessarily racial capitalism. And if it is necessarily racial capitalism, it is also, as you were saying earlier, the carceral state or states in general. Now, I'm not anti-state. I'm not an anarchist. I have not concluded yet, and I'm almost 73 years old, that something called the state must at all times be more against me than for me. I think that we need big things like transportation and clean water and adequate housing, and I believe in education and all of those things and healthcare. And I do not, um, I cannot, I haven't been convinced that these are things that we can make through some kind of mutual aid um, uh, self-sufficiency. But those are things for us to debate. Um, but however, where abolition comes in to our ability to understand the specificities of class war, as we look around the world, 
which is to say, even leaving aside the experiences of people who live in the white supremacist settler colonial states, because most people on the planet don't. And yet, class war is as vibrant and devastating in those places as it, as, as it is in the US or Canada or Australia or South Africa, all right? right. So what then, I ask myself, does abolition bring to a general uh, concern about the uh, question of class war and the underlying question about how we understand class composition? This takes me back again to Stuart Hall and many of the other people I've learned with and from uh, over the years, and that is that the way we tend to define, we, we, many people have tended to define class has been outdated for as long as a lot of people have, have written about it. Let us say when Marx was still alive and the Paris Commune had you know, quite um, successfully, even for a limited period, uh, taken over a good deal of that city. One could not say something crisp and clear about what the class that composed that uprising and successful takeover looks like. Or if we look around the world um, as it transformed in the, in the 20th century into um, uh, the USSR or the People's Republic of China and other places, we see that the class composition of those revolutionary societies was not an industrialized proletariat. It was really mixed. There was proletariat and, and peasants and all kinds of people in between. And yet the revolutionary fervor arose from the ground up given how people uh, connected, connected their um, senses of vulnerability and their demands for protection and opportunity. And that's where we are, I think, in the current moment, that abolition lets us look at how people are struggling and understand that the organized abandonment that characterizes so much of everyday life under capitalism, which is to say uh, racial capitalism, all of capitalism, um, that that organized abandonment is maintained, right? is bordered and boundaried by the forces of organized violence. And we can see that most explicitly in prison and police. Right. It's not only there, but that's what we see it most explicitly, is it with prison and police. So taking then that wider view uh, from the lens of abolition, we can see that the um, contours of, of class in any number of uh, circumstances in which people are actually struggling will not necessarily reflect categorically something called the industrial proletariat, and yet 
what we'll see are people who are struggling because of the organization of capitalist accumulation, whose need to control land, to have housing, to have food, to have water, to be able to move around, to stay, stay put, is all shaped again by the forces of organized violence. And abolition then says clearly, this is a central struggle in all class war. So then would it, uh, would it be fair to say that if we, that abolition of, of prisons does not and cannot happen in isolation, that it is, that if we want to see an end of the prison state, we have to understand how deeply it is a part of a racial capitalist system, and that in order to envision a world without prisons, we need to envision an entirely different world altogether. That's exactly right. Okay. That is exactly right. And some people who are listening to us now will say, oh, that's so unrealistic, <laughs> envisioning an entirely different world. And I say to people, are you looking at me through a computer screen, that is a world entirely different from the world I was born into. Mm. So Nali and I are talking to each other. These are entirely different worlds from the worlds our parents were born into. We are both speaking English. These are entirely different worlds from a century and a half ago. Uh, we can go on and on and on. The, in imagining the impossible is what people have been doing in the struggle for liberation. That's, that's what it is. That's what it is. And there are you know, all different kinds of uh, actions and energies that come together to realize these struggles. Um, I'll give an example from a recent experience that I had. My partner, Craig Gilmore, and I were um, in South Africa for three weeks at the end of November and into the middle of December. And we were, we'd been invited there by some comrades. Um, I mentioned the University of Western Cape. They were my host in Cape Town, also an organization called The Forge in Johannesburg. And uh, the uh, quote unquote shack dwellers, organization Abakshali Bes Mjandolo, which is kind of dotted around uh, South Africa, most strongly in Durban, but also in Johannesburg and elsewhere. And uh, the people who are, are uh, active and um, organized in Abakshali are people who have, uh, in the desperation of needing a place to live, this is basic, a place to live, have uh, collectively occupied land and built houses, and then to the extent that they can, can used every possible means to defend them using legal means and appeals to the constitution and other means even as the forces of organized violence, whether it's the central state police, provincial police, metropolitan police, eviction units, and so forth, are constantly destroying the communities that people have built. 
the Abashali has been around now for 15 or 16 years. We had the opportunity to visit several of the different villages, let's call them, um, dotted around the country, meet with leadership, talk to people. It was quite astonishing um, to do. And what we saw, of course, in the context of people building socialism from the ground up was people realizing the impossible, right? There's nothing utopian about the everyday lives of people in the communities. And yet it was a place, they were places where people feel a lot of hope and energy and possibility because of what people have accomplished together. Have they um, exited, as it were, quote unquote, the state? No, they are demanding that the state, whether it's the municipal or provincial or central government, provide water and sanitation and all of the other things that the state should provide. So it's not as though they've built a a uh, self-sustaining community that doesn't need running water, doesn't need electricity, doesn't need all those things. It needs those things. And by working together in building and maintaining uh, the communities, what has happened is in some cases, but not all, people have successfully um, gotten the infrastructural um, support that any, any, residential community needs. And these are fights over urban space. If we turn our sights to Brazil, and this is somewhere I haven't been or haven't been yet, we see that the MST, the Landless Workers Movement, is doing similar kinds of work. And Abashali and the MST are in conversation with one another in a really beautiful and I believe strong uh, internationalist solidarity um, move that is happening other places as well. So these to me are examples of abolition geography. They're examples of people doing anti-racist work, not only by polemicizing about racism, which is necessary when it's necessary, but by making something, hmm. by making and doing things. And quite often, uh, some of that possibility doesn't even seem realizable until, for example, artists have helped people kind of open their imaginations to what can be done. Um, and I don't mean art artists making up a kind of science fiction fable that then ordinary people realize, but just the way that art enables your mind and heart to open to uh, to sense, even if you can't quite express or explain, I should say, to sense, even if you can't quite explain the possibilities for different configurations of human and resource interaction. And World building, they call it these days sometimes. World building, <laughs> that's even better. <laughs> Well, Ruthie, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I could talk to you all day, but I know that you're busy and uh, certainly invite my audience to read your book and get into the thick of it. It's called Abolition Geography, Essays Towards Liberation. Thank you so much for all you do and for spending this time with me. Thank you for having me.
My guest has been Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore, and she is a professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences and American Studies and the director of the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics at CUNY Graduate Center. She's co-founded many grassroots organizations, including the California Prison Moratorium Project, Critical Resistance, and more. And again, we've been talking about her new book, just out by Verso, Abolition Geography, Essays Towards Liberation. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.